and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Mark Riccio has had quite a journey when it comes to leadership and specifically when it comes to leadership in sports. As you're going to find out quite early in our conversation today, Mark had a vision for where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. And it's led him to becoming the chief executive officer at USA Lacrosse. So we absolutely talk about lacrosse in this conversation, the culture of lacrosse, the vision as far as where it's going, where it's been. And Mark has a long history playing the game in college. And so he's going to share his perspective on the game of lacrosse prior to working as the CEO of USA Lacrosse. He's worked in venture capital. He's worked for the New York Jets. He also worked at his alma mater, Hofstra University, where he was an adjunct associate professor. And he also worked with the athletic department there in marketing and athletic fundraising. And this conversation really is about what Mark has learned along the way, how he's changed, how he's evolved, and how he tries to lead USA Lacrosse 
in large part due to observing other leaders in sport and how they interacted with people and how they created a culture that is competitive, but it's also one that is diverse and is open to ideas. So I think you'll find Mark to be extremely focused, extremely driven, and somebody who really wants to make an impact, especially in a sport that is close to his heart. So here is Mark Riccio. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You were referred to us by Val Ackerman and you know, Val is such a fascinating person with such an incredible range of experience. And so we loved having her on. And as I looked into your background, you've got a range of experience as well. And when I asked you, hey, what do you like talking about? You said, gosh, the time with the New York Jets and and seeing Bill Parcells operate uh, a legendary head coach uh, was uh, in, informs a lot of your leadership style and how you think about things. So let's start there. Uh, what did you learn in your time with the Jets? You were there for a while. So uh, what was that experience like for you and, and what were your takeaways from, from that experience? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate it. And appreciate Val's recommendation. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, yeah. So my time at the Jets was, I spent 17 seasons there and it was, it was a great experience because when I started there, we were under the ownership of Leon Hess, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, we were a mom and pop shop in the NFL world. And then Woody Johnson bought the team. We made an effort to go to New York City as part of the 2012 Olympic bid. And then ultimately that did not pan out. Uh, built a stadium in conjunction with the Giants as joint venture partners, which is now MetLife Stadium. So I was fortunate enough to go through all of those experiences. But during that process, we had multiple head coaches, <laughs> um, which you saw different leadership styles, you know, from a Rich Cotite to Bill Parcells to Herm Edwards or Rex Ryan and Eric Mangini and uh, Al Groves, multiple head coaches. But the thing that really resonated for me was the way Bill Parcells would lead and how he could connect with people and how he could have a conversation with a player about, you know, the best, you know, sandwich at the deli around the corner to where that player went to college and knew what buttons to push to motivate that player. Uh, but the biggest takeaway I, I really learned from him was when we were prepping for our first Super Bowl run. Um, and, and I can't remember the year uh, we were playing against um, Denver in the, in the AFC championship game. And he, we have to prepare for the NFL uh, or for the, excuse me, the Super Bowl at that time. And uh, even though you're one of four teams remaining, you've got to prepare. So if you win the championship game, you go to the Super Bowl, you just flip a switch and you go. There's there's no lag time. And he was so f intense around eliminating player distraction. And it was one of my first great lessons in watching him understand that distraction is the number one enemy of high performance. Distraction is the number one enemy of revenue generation. It's the number one enemy of executing your business plan or your game plan. And that was my great takeaway. To this day, I use that. Our, one of my jobs as a leader is to eliminate distraction. And, and I learned that from Bill Parcells, along with many other lessons. But that, that's certainly one of the great takeaways. Uh, and the other was, if you got two quarterbacks, you have none. And that, and that was a great line that you know, he came up with. It was a real lesson for me. Is if you, In a business environment, if you got more than one uh, you know, person that you're accountable to in a way that creates uh, confusion, 
that then becomes distraction and you cannot operate effectively. So certainly I could keep going with, with Bill Parcells learnings, but those are some of my two great takeaways. Let's stay on distraction. So we'll come back to the Jets and use that throughout our conversation today, but running USA lacrosse, what are some things that you do to minimize distraction for yourself and for your team? Wow. Well, the first thing that we really have focused on, and I've been in the role for just over a year, the first thing we focused on was simplifying our mission. Because when I talk to people and I say, you know, do you know what USA Lacrosse does? As the governing body of the sport in the United States, do you know what we do? And there's a lot of times people who have been involved in the game for many, many years don't know the answer to that. And when I got into the organization, I would ask people internally, what do we do? And you get different answers. And I've experienced that before walking in um, from a consulting environment. Uh, so that's not uncommon in organizations, uh, but it was a real um, moment that I demonstrated to folks, okay, we're getting different answers to this question and we all should be focused on the same, same, same thing. So the first was simplifying our mission. Boil it down to 11 words, three objectives fuel the growth, enrich the experience, fuel the best national teams. So that uh, focus was a method to eliminate distraction that we would be focused on those on that mission. Uh, the other part was simplifying our business plans. You know, we had a previous five-year plan that was very aspirational, uh, had a lot of objectives, a lot of strategies, and COVID really turned that on its head. Uh, and coming out of COVID, there was a real recognition that we needed to simplify our business plan. So then I simplified our business plan into uh, three goals. So you got a mission is certainly, you know, what you do, why you do it, so to speak, but how you do it and how you measure it were just three goals. One is national participation. The second is revenue. Revenue is important, even for a 501c3, because the more money we generate, the more we get to put back in the sport and uh, gold medal or high performance for our national team goals. So you simplify your mission and then you simplify your goals. Uh, and even to the point this year and part of our business planning was uh, is each of our business heads have to submit three things they're not going to do this year hmm. to be that much more prescriptive about. We need to say no or not now because it, like any organization, I got a dollar to spend. How am I going to spend it? I got an hour to spend. How am I going to spend it? And they need it. It needs to ladder up to the mission and the goals. And if it doesn't, you need to show me why it's still strategically important. And if you can't, then we don't do it. I love that. I always think of focus as just directed attention and where are we directing our attention? And we had a, a podcast guest on Nick Tasler, and he said, you can do anything you want in 2022, but you can't do everything. So he calls it a wait list. He said, put it on the wait list. Just because it's not good for us right now doesn't mean it won't be good for us in 2023 or 2024, but just put it on that wait list and just wait on it. And I use that. Like I've got a lot of ideas and it's just like, they're not going to serve me right now. So I love that you'd say, hey, what are the three things that we're not going to do? Because a lot of times that unlocks our ability to focus and keep the main thing, the main thing. Um, but there's, you, you say growth a lot. And when I think about lacrosse, I feel as though growth is a word that gets used all the time. 
And before we started recording, I gave you a little of my background with the cross, which is pretty minimal. But I did grow up in Maryland in an area where the private schools were great at lacrosse, some of the best private high school lacrosse programs in the country. Public schools, not as much. But as I became and in, got into high school, they started to really come and fast forward 20 years later and they have great programs kind of everywhere in Maryland now. Um, so it's certainly grown and I've seen it. And even I have a six-year-old and I see the kids now playing. And um, so growth has been talked about quite a bit in lacrosse. Can you give us a sense of what has happened uh, maybe the last decade for those that aren't aware as far as the growth of lacrosse? Um, and maybe we'll, we'll start there and then we can talk about where it might be going. Yeah. You know, when I, when I sometimes think of us, and, you know, people in the in the game and in the sport using growth. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think of the MLS and soccer. Right? Soccer's been the, the the sport of the next decade for the last four or five decades, <laughs> and you know, I think now it's it is starting to find its its footing. You know, in mainstream, particularly because the women's game gets to accelerate um, at the pace it has. With that said, you know, you hear that a lot in lacrosse. You know, hashtag grow the game and all that. And I, and I try to stay away from that a bit. Because what does that really mean to your point? And I think we fall, here's my point of thing about lacrosse. We do a great job talking to ourselves. We need to talk to new audiences. And that's really important. Um, and the game has grown organically over the last decade um, at a fantastic clip, both boys and girls. And a lot has to do with gender equitable opportunities girls game is growing at a faster clip than, than, than the boys game, but then COVID comes and growth is actually plateaued. Um, mm -hmm. If not taking a step backwards in some markets on the boys side, because of access to the game, you lost two years. So you have second, third and fourth graders now who didn't get the opportunity in local communities to pick up a stick and play because of COVID that community, you know, center wasn't running or wasn't running team sports. So as much as we talk about growth, we got to look in the mirror and say, we got work to do here in team sports in America. The other challenge in, in the U.S. is that pay-for-play model. All youth sports in America has a pay-for-play challenge, and that's not just about lacrosse. It is about baseball and basketball and other sports where if you've got the financial means to be part of a club or get transportation to a field and you got a caregiver who can pick you up to and from practice, you, you that's financial means and many communities and people don't have that financial um, and time ability to get their kids into certain programs and that's a challenge that all youth sports have so when I talk about growth it's really about addressing those issues of accessibility sustainable pathways to play in communities and what we need to do as an organization is put a call to action to what grow the game really means. Just to say it doesn't change anything. You need to put tangible call to action, executable initiatives in place that you can measure impact. And so what we're doing is we're saying, how do we look at our fan and our player, like customer acquisition modeling in, in, in the private sector? What does it cost to acquire a player? What does it cost to retain a player? What are the most effective means for that to happen? And not just a, you know, a, a player from a community that has resources, but players from communities that don't have resources. That might cost more, but that's okay. But we need to know what that cost is and be able to have make that investment to acquire the player, retain the player. 
And so, but we can't do that alone sitting in Maryland at our headquarters. You need partners to do that. You need community groups. You need private club operators, people that operate private, if you will, club sport. You need the pro leagues, you need the colleges, all to support that same call to action. So one of the things that we're doing is establishing a platform called National Celebrate Lacrosse Week, where we take a one week in November, and we're only in the second year doing this, we're testing different models, that we want the entire lacrosse community to focus its resources on free moments in time during that week where kids get to pick up a stick, which is a financial barrier to entry, the cost of a stick. You get to pick up a stick and go play the game. And if you like that game, we've got a pathway to play in that community. And that needs to be part of that whole infrastructure. So the other is really focused on community lacrosse rec programs. Uh, and that's a more built out strategy. But the point being is, it, is it's not about growing, it's actually about providing people a call to action that they can actually execute in their communities and getting partners to help do that because we can't do it alone. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. You started with MLS, and I've worked with an MLS team. I've I'm, I'm, I've spent time with USA Soccer, and so I'm familiar with it. It's interesting because I was thinking about soccer. Okay, MLS is starting to grow. You see English Premier League. You brought up women's soccer. There, there's growth happening in our country, but that that sport's been top top of the pyramid in the rest of the world for a long, long time. I was thinking about hockey when you were talking about access and you were talking about who plays. And it's interesting because um, my son is playing like street hockey and he's wearing these pads. He's playing lacrosse. He's wearing these pads. You got to buy the equipment. Um, hockey has a different challenge as far as access with ice time versus a field, which you guys can provide. But hockey too is a world game. And so you've got this global component in, you know, a lot of, Europe and Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Your sport like hockey though, Canada and the U S are huge drivers in the sport and huge players in the sport. And while there are people of color at the highest levels in both of your sports, I think both of those schools are still see uh, schools. Both, both of the sports are still seen as a largely predominantly white, uh, wealthy, you know, limited access, type sport. I would say both lacrosse and hockey. And actually a lot of kids that play hockey, play lacrosse. A lot of kids that play lacrosse, play hockey. Um, can you talk a little bit about access? Cause what I hear you say, we need to grow in other areas. What I'm hearing is like, we can't just be the sport for the white prep school kid. And Lars Tiffany, when I had him on, he talks a lot about growing up and playing this game with native Americans and this spiritual component and this beautiful aspect of the game. And I live in Maryland. Like Bro lacrosse culture is real. It's not the entire game, just like any sport probably has a culture inside of it that is, is gets generalized quite a bit, but there is an element of that that still exists. How do you open the doors? Golf has this problem too. Like how does golf grow beyond just the white wealthy kids and they had tiger and still it's a challenge for golf's growth. So I, I know there's a lot that goes into this when we talk about race and we talk about class and we talk about gender, like these elements, but it sounds like that's something that you are focused on as you try to grow the game, at least in this country. I am very focused on it. Um, the first thing that I will say is that I have, maybe it's the New Yorker in me. So I, I grew up in Western New York, uh, near Lars, Tiffany, actually, uh, a little west of him 
uh, in the Fring Lakes region. So I grew up with certainly the Native American culture around me that I respected a great deal. Admittedly, it was a colonialized version of it, which I've since you know, educated myself on uh, much deeper. I then spent a lot of time in Long Island. I went to college there, played there, lived there, worked there in Long Island, New York. And now, you know, I get my taste of Maryland just in terms of that Northeast quarter. The, the, the point to all of that is I didn't, I played lacrosse in a public high school. I needed lacrosse as a method for me to get to the next level educationally, quite frankly. So lacrosse for me was an access point that changed my life. I didn't grow up in a community or a house that had money at all, quite frankly. I had to go to my high school coaches home to talk to college coaches because we our phone kept getting turned off because we couldn't pay the bills like so lacrosse i didn't grow up in that environment and then i saw that same you know type of work ethic and opportunity that lacrosse provided at the college level at hofstra long island like we would you know hofstra's is on hempstead turnpike in long island and you know you, you ask players and that are there now, but also for me, it's like, it was, we call the turnpike mentality. Like you grind it out, you work hard, it's blue collar. Um, you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth type of environment. The point to all of that is that lacrosse changes people's lives, boys, girls, adults, parents. And you hear that from lacrosse players more than I've heard it from any other sport. It's this interesting cultural community thing that, that we all recognize that lacrosse can positively change people's lives. And it's not just because you might get a chance to play college. It's more about your ability to socialize the academic, um, you know, part of people around you, helping you with school, social infrastructure, et cetera. So the first thing is the New Yorker in me is very, is very comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I dress it head on. And when I talk about participation as a goal, I had a board member say to me, well, if you want to maximize participation, why don't you just, we just market the sport to rich white kids. Mm. And it was the point that a board member could say that to me and challenge me at that moment. And the point, the point that I could respond to that board member say, yes, you're right. But that's not the objective. The objective is certainly participation, but there's KPIs within that participation about how we diversify the sport and diversification of the support, meaning more, more Brown, more black, more Asian, more indigenous um, people playing the game comes from not only that player, but coaches and community. So I'll talk to Harlem Lacrosse or the Baltimore Turks, which are great programs, have done a great job in their communities of color in driving not only participation, but continued growth. And they are changing lives for these young men and young women. And the thing that they have really said to me that has stuck is that you need coaches of color to work with the kids of color because that kid needs to trust that coach. That coach needs to understand what that kid is going through in their community, good or bad, challenges, opportunities. That kid needs to relate to the coach and vice versa for that kid to say, hey, I like this sport. This sport is for me. I can do this. And that, so when we talk about growth, the, the thing that is often underestimated is it's one thing to get a stick in a kid's hand it's another thing that, that this kid, the stick needs to stay in the kid's hands. And part of that, particularly um, in communities of color, is having the community take ownership of that opportunity. And so that program could be sustainable. There's a pathway to play, again, with people that look like me, that come from my community, that understand what you know I'm going through day in and day out. So from a cultural standpoint, I address it head on. I, we're very, 
intentional and very purposeful at how we continue to diversify the game. So when I talk about that national celebrate lacrosse week, we're looking at what programs that we're running these free clinics are uh, under-resourced communities, communities of color. How are, how are we making sure that it's not just 70 communities that have resources and they're white kids that they're, no, these, out of these 70 communities that we're running this year's program at, how are we uh, ensuring that we continue to diversify the sport? And the last thing, which is the challenge, is that this lax pro culture, the more we talk about it, the more we perpetuate it. And that's my challenge, is that I'm not sticking my head in the sand, but I also like, listen, the more we talk about it, the more are we perpetuating. When you look at generationally, outside of the Northeast quarter, you know, in particular, they, they, they don't have that history. They don't have that prep school history in a lot of markets. They're just kids who want to play. <laughs> and, and so the challenge for us is balancing that, being uh, honest with ourselves in terms of how we need to continue to diversify players and coaches in our game, but at the same point, not get so caught up in it that we, it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy. And I think there is real opportunity for us to do that, uh, not only around uh, black and brown communities, but indigenous is really, one of the things that we really wanna do is, you know, is teach cultural competency in, with a lot of our coaching and player curriculums because it is about the Native American roots, how this game was gifted to us. That's a great origin story. And yeah. that's really compelling. I mean, when I had Lars on, he blew me away. And since then, we've spent time together. I mean, what a great advocate for your sport. And I mean, he's a vegan and he's thoughtful, but he's intense. And he I mean, I just think he represents a lot of what you think your culture is. And he's going to all these schools and recruiting them. And, and we talked about that tension quite a bit. And so I think it's it's fascinating because if you look deeper, there are people that are connected to the spiritual side of lacrosse, the team side of lacrosse, uh, the brotherhood or sisterhood side of lacrosse. Um, and so I think it, it is interesting. I want to shine the light back on you because you said something you said, you know, I grew up poor, like we didn't have much. And yet when I look at your, your career, you go and get your MBA, then you go get your JD so where did that come from, that desire to go study business and study law? Um, were you driven by finances early on uh, or was something else driving you to pursue those degrees? What, what was the drive to get the education that you got? Um, so the, the path was I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship for lacrosse and that helped get me through undergrad. Um, I blew out my knee between my junior and my sophomore and junior year. So I got a fifth year of eligibility that I was crazy enough to take advantage of. So I did. And I started grad school while I was playing. So then I started grad school and thought, well, I, I started this. I, I got to finish it. So I had to get a graduate assistant job, which I was actually able to do at Hofstra after my eligibility was up. So I could um, get tuition remission as part of a GA job. But I was waiting tables. Um, you know, working <laughs> to make money, to pay a little bit of rent. But then I got a job as an RA so I could live for free. So I was working the system as best I could to pay for graduate school and living there, waiting tables. I then got a full-time job. So then I finished out grad school. And then, but I, I applied for law school thinking, while well, I was still working full-time. Uh, so Mark, the MBA was 
all right, this is something that's good for me to do while I'm playing lacrosse, while I'm staying in this world. It makes sense to get a master's. What's the master's? It wasn't that, hey, I really want to get into business. Like what what was the the no. thinking behind it? It's like, hey, I can stay in lacrosse longer. Um, why wouldn't I just get this thing and get to keep playing and get to be around the game as a as a coach, et cetera? It was a fifth year of eligibility. Like now that happens regularly given COVID and everything else that goes on, but you know, I had an injury redshirt year, so I got a fifth year of eligibility that I wanted to take advantage of. And the only way to do that was remain a full-time student. And so I could have, you know, taken some, you know, bogus undergrad classes, but why would I do that? Like, no, start getting my MBA. And so I didn't plan on getting my MBA. I didn't go to undergrad and I was an undergrad major in communications and television broadcasting. I thought I was going to be in front of the camera or work in that production world the MBA and I had to take all these prerequisites because I didn't have a lot of business undergrad. So the MBA took me a long time because I was also going at night. I had to work. Like I could not, I didn't have the financial means. My family couldn't provide that means. So I, I kind of accidentally found my way into the MBA simply because I wanted to get that other year of eligibility. And then studying law, what, what led you down that path? So what I started to realize is that the MBA was a competitive necessity, not a competitive advantage. Hmm. particularly coming out of, you know, a mid-major like Hofstra, wasn't coming out of a Harvard or Yale. And what I've since learned, you know, those mid-major schools are the ones that really do transform wealth for people more than, say, the elite schools. And, and I've done some work in, in, in reading about that. So, but for Wait, me, it can was you tell great. me? Can you tell me more about that? So um, there is some studies out that a school like a Hofstra which is a competitive, not as, but not nearly as highly competitive as say like an Ivy or Stanford or Carolina, is that are people that go to those MBA programs in those schools and their success afterwards, is it causational or correlational? Meaning are they, are their lives changing and transforming because they went to those schools or they were just predisposed because they're high performers anyways, or their parents had the financial means to, 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 to get them there. Whereas a school like Hofstra, you have people come in there and they, where they come in to what their life becomes is far more transformational. Hmm, because, and, and there's some interesting research done on this and interesting podcasts I've listened to recently on this, just understanding the college landscape. I worked at college, so I worked at Hofstra for seven years after I turned, as I said, I was a GA that I turned into a full-time job. Um, and I'm case in point to that. For me, Hofstra was transformational from where I come from and you know what I've been able to do with my career and life afterwards. N- not saying that it wouldn't have been at an Ivy League school, but there is some you know research done that, that certain schools be, just have a, a greater net gap. impact. Yeah, yes. if I'm hearing it correct, where someone is and where they end up the gap of that, the growth of that is, is higher in, in some ways, because potentially the people that are going to those MBAs uh, at the Ivies already are in a good place. And then they're just growing from there. Whereas people that might be at a Hofstra are going there like you, and then their growth is more exponential. I think I got it. Correct. Correct. And that I'm case in point for that. But what I realized is the MBA was a competitive necessity more so than a competitive advantage. And so I decided to apply for law school while I was working at Hofstra full time. And I did well on the LSATs, much to my surprise, and said, well, I did well on the LSATs. I guess I better apply to school. And I applied and I got into St. John's Law School at night. And I decided to go to school at night. And so 
I work all day. I go to class four nights a week, you know, spend your weekends doing the work. And I did that for four years. Night school was four year program. And in between, I got the job at the Jets. So I, I moved from Austria to the Jets in between all of that. Um, and to your first point, why I did all of that. I was driven by seeing a bit of chaos in my household. And listen, I grew up in a very loving, wonderful household. So I had a social infrastructure, just didn't have a bigger financial infrastructure. And those are, that's really important. So when I talk about the effect that lacrosse can have on people who don't have a social infrastructure, that team environment and that coach can be that. I was fortunate enough to have that social infrastructure that supported me, even though financially we didn't have the means. And so, but I saw that chaos that was happening in my home. And when you say and chaos, I, can you can you double click on that for us? Like, what do you mean by that? Sure, it's a big word. It is a big word. So, listen, my my parents are divorced. Both my mother and my stepfather, whom I lived with, wonderful, wonderful. My mother's still with us. Wonderful people, but they're alcoholics as well. And it wasn't abusive, and it wasn't um, anything like that. But they made some poor financial decisions, <laughs> and they made some poor decisions in life, like. You know, I, I, we got evicted from our home uh, right after I left college. They bounced around a bit, you know. My, my, my friends had to move my parents into a hotel because I was away at a lacrosse camp, and, you know. And, and, and so my friends saw what was going on. I actually lived with one of my good friends for um, a chunk of coming out, like right after my senior year in high school, um, you know, I was crouch, couch crashing. So... It's not, and listen, there are a lot of people that have far worse experiences. I, 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 like I said, I had people that cared for me and I had people that I could lean on, but going through that and I, and I wasn't, you know, I, I was having a good life regardless. You just, you work through it, you find a way. And I was, like I said, fortunate enough to have people around me that, that helped is that I never wanted to be in that environment. I never wanted to be financially not independent. And, um, and I lived literally paycheck to paycheck, literally up until my late twenties. And that and Mark, was your, even your relationship with alcohol. Like how did that witnessing that, how did that shape your relationship with alcohol? Oh, I am very conscious and aware of the impact of alcohol and substance abuse can have on people. Uh, my mom is 25 years sober. Um, we talk openly about, um, AA, I've been to some AA meetings. It's an intense experience. Uh, I, you know, the, the ability for people to truly go sober is really small and it's really hard. And you see it now in today's day and age that it's not only alcohol, it's, it's pills and other types of substance abuse. So I have a very healthy relationship with alcohol. I'm very fortunate that both me, my family, my brother, um, my kids, everybody's healthy and is in a healthy place, but I'm, I'm obviously quite conscious of it. And I'm also quite conscious of the disruption it can have in a family environment. For sure. Very conscious of it. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. I, I work with people intimately and they don't come to me for substance abuse or trauma or anything like that. But I think these are things that we don't always see and we don't always know about. And I hear you saying, Hey, I still was loved and all these things, but like your story is your story. And, um, you know, for me, it makes you more human. And 
Uh, it also gives me a sense of, all right, what was driving him and what probably continues to drive you to a certain extent. I was talking to a client yesterday about it and they said, look, like my childhood impacts me. It still does. And the way that I was treated and the way I treat myself was impacted in large part due to my childhood. So I love using this phrase up until now, like, okay, so you've been a certain way up until now. How do you want to change that? And that's hard work for, for many of us. Um, back to law school real quick. So the idea that I want to be financially independent, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. My dad, you know, uh, went to law school, went to law school at night, worked during the day, came from humble means, and he makes no bones about it. He's like, I was driven to make money. Um, and I really wanted to have money because I knew what it was like to not have money and not have what other people I knew had. Um, and for you was, was law school about that? Was it about, you know, your interest in the law and justice and, and other stuff, or what was the, what was the driving point to get you to St. John's? Um, what was interesting is I want to come back to the money thing, cause I've had some experience with jobs I didn't take that were more money with a recognition that if I went for the money, I might in, in the long run regret it. And, and I was faced with a couple of those decisions that I think fortunately, or I, I don't know, maybe because you never know how that path would have been, but I'll come back to that. The law school thing for me was uh, the competition. I, I'm very competitive. I expect to win everything I do. I'm driven more by my hatred of losing than my joy of winning. Is that healthy that, for you? <laughs> I think at times it was not. I think what I have learned is to take the foot off the gas sometimes. And that took me some, some experiences. And I'll say like when I was at the Jets, I was, I was very intense, very intense. And um, I was intense in a way that would not be appropriate in today's environment in terms of how to work with folks. Um, now, you know, working in a sports environment, you know, to, to curse, you know, in, in a moment of intensity was acceptable. It's less acceptable now. And I'm not saying cursing at someone, just cursing about frustration or whatnot. Um, it's even less acceptable now. And there was, a, you know, I was driven at that age <clears throat> by this intensity to succeed. I wanted to win and succeed because I saw what potential failure was and I did, I wanted no part of that. And that, and that was the same on the field, but I probably became more intense off the field than I did on the field. And, you know, that's why I went to law school. But the thing that drew me about law school is what I, what I started to see leaders in sport in particular were coming out of law or finance. Those two areas, and to this day, that trend still exists, although it's evolved a little bit around. You when know, you say leaders, you, you mean it, business of sport. You're talking about business, the business of sport. Of sport. Correct. Mm -hmm. So that would be people that were commissioners you know, of leagues and that sort of stuff commissioners of league, presidents of teams and entities like that. So you were um, clear, Mark, after you are a GA at Hofstra, at some point you said, all right, you know what? I probably want to go into the business. And, and in fairness, lacrosse, it, it's still, we can talk about pro lacrosse league and where that's going, but it, it's not like the NHL, which I mentioned earlier with hockey or even major league soccer, like the pathway to be a, a professional in, in lacrosse was really at the college level. So I guess you, you realize they're like, Hey, I want to be in the business of sport, but I don't see myself as the head coach of 
Hofstra lacrosse or Princeton lacrosse or whatever it is going forward. Correct. I never desired to go on the sport side of any sport, whether that was lacrosse or football or any other sport. And in those organizations to this day, there's a bit of you work on either the, the, the sport, the technical side of the sport, or you work on the business. I was always drawn to the business. Um, I think in part, that's just where my head was hardwired. It was also financially, I knew that was going to be more stable and, and more opportunity. I didn't really know how much different it was, but instinctively I, I saw that. I didn't desire to go be a coach in, uh, in any way. <laughs> and so I still don't. Coaches, I give them enormous credit. It's it's a grind. It is like talk about hard work. Like to make it in the coaching industry, regardless of the sport, is really, really hard. And so I went down the business route. And the law part of it was I wanted law school to me to be in a competitive advantage. I had, I had no desire to go practice per se, although I did take the bar and pass it. You kind of have to do that. Uh, when you go to law school right away, otherwise you forget <laughs> a lot of that and the bar becomes out of reach. And so I did that with the expectation I'm using this law degree to supplement my business career, not to go practice, not to be an agent. I did not want to do that. It was about how do I put myself in a position to be competitively different than everybody else. And that's the, one of the other great things I've learned through the years is there's so many people that are bigger, faster, stronger on the field, that are bigger, faster, stronger, smarter off the field. And you got to continually look around corners. You got to continually differentiate your skill set and, and what you bring to the table. And for me, law school was that combined with the MBA, combined with the undergraduate degree. And I didn't realize how much it would help me until later in my career, quite frankly, because early in my career didn't seem to help me as much. It helps me much later in terms of understanding problems problem solving skills, looking at, you know, I, I had somebody say to me the other day is, you know, your, your ability to play three-dimensional chess is, 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 is enhanced, is magnified, is reflected in that law degree to a certain extent combined with the business acumen. And so for me, that that's what law school was. It was a way to differentiate myself. With that said, I was fascinated by constitutional law. The constitution is a great document super interesting to me, uh, particularly in today's day and age and what's going on in the world. But uh, so I was drawn to the law as a discipline of interest, but not law as a profession from a career standpoint. Yeah, I think being a great CEO, there's a lot of qualities you need, but I think there's like three main buckets that I've found. Uh, and most CEOs don't have all three. I think you can be a really good CEO. If you have two of these three, you can be elite great CEO if you have all three, but I boil them down to like attention to detail and like really being able to see things and, and have the discipline to stay with a contract, for example, and really see it and understand it and notice it, which, which law school teaches, right? Like the attention to detail. Then there's like the vision, inspiration, strategy, which there's some law school in there too, but like seeing things ahead, where are we going, being able to inspire uh, with a vision or a strategy uh, and, and creativity is, is like big in that bucket. And then there's the people skills. I call it like the emotional intelligence bucket. Like, can you actually manage people? Can you actually, you know, 
help your direct reports get better. And it sounds like when you were at the Jets, at least, maybe that was the bucket that was a challenge for you. And maybe that intensity and competitive spirit sometimes didn't lead to you being a great leader at a young age. Um, and so if I'm hearing it correctly, like that's the bucket that you need. And it's interesting with the Jets because I'm friends with Eric Mangini. I've had him on the podcast. We've had conversations over the years. And he's very open about his time with the Jets, where he's following Bill Parcells and he's nicknamed a genius. And he's very young at that time. And he admits like he sometimes wasn't his authentic self when he was with the Jets. He's in this big market with the media and the press and reflectively he's like yeah i wasn't me i was trying to be something different other than me because if you ever spend time with eric like he's a fun loving guy like he's a guy you'd want to go have a beer with and but he never showed that side of himself at least when he was in new york um so authenticity is something that i'm curious about like as you're finding your legs as a leader with the jets and there's some intensity there and maybe you know that competitive spirit boils over and into actions that aren't regrets per se, but are things that you would do differently if you were in those shoes today. What did you learn about your leadership style uh, going through? And you're there for 17 years experiencing the Jets and, and also learning like, yeah, Bill Parcells might be able to do some things because he's Bill Parcells and he's the head coach of a football team. I might not be able to do that. And what works for Bill Parcells as a leader, there might be qualities that I absolutely can take but there's also qualities that I probably can't take. And if Bill was still coaching, he'd probably have to evolve in 2022. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think Bill would admit that. I, I've talked to people about Bill, like yeah, there's a lot of intensity there. There's there's a lot there. Um, and there's great stuff and some stuff that probably needed to evolve and change if he was going to continue to lead. Um, so I know that was a lot of talking, but your leadership style, how have you evolved uh, over the years? Um, well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you brought up Eric Mangini, uh, and I was unaware of his reflection with you on his time there. What's interesting is Eric and I came into the Jets around the same time. I was a little bit before, but we were on the same age. And so while I can't say that I got to know Eric well, I did get to know him, and I did not work with the football side of it very much. Um, but I did get to know Eric um, on different occasions, we had actually brokered a deal for him when he was the head coach with Motorola at the time. So I spent some time with him during that process. And you're right, super down to earth, really nice guy, really enjoyable to hang out with. I got a chance to meet his wife, same thing, like just nice people. And what was interesting is I saw what he went through and it was hard. And, and I'll never forget Al Grow, who was also on that staff, who was the head coach for a year, at the Jets, he had said to me one time, we were talking lacrosse, he was a lacrosse guy, by the way. Um, he had said to me, don't let the job change you. I'll never forget that statement. He said, this job can change people. And he just was just getting the head coach job. And for Eric, I think he probably was impacted by that. But in his defense, it's really hard in New York and a lot of other places uh, to how the job can change you. And I've always remembered that and I had gone at the Jets from being, you know, one of the salespeople, kind of the head salesperson to early in my career, all of a sudden, okay, you're going to be the boss. Like, you're going to start running this group. And then ultimately, I started getting more and more responsibility. So that early age, like I said, I was pretty intense. What I learned through that process, and then I even learned after that, being around venture capital and startup environment and, and 
even recently at, a, at an agency now where I am today is that there are no throwaway comments as a leader is that everybody is watching what you do, how you do it and body language matters. What you do sometimes speaks louder than what you say. So everything I tell my direct reports real simple. When I start rubbing my head, you know, my forehead, it means I'm thinking, doesn't mean I'm frustrated. Doesn't mean I'm angry. Like I'm, and I will tell people intentionally. So they don't try to fill the gaps in themselves to my body language. I'll tell people when I'm looking out the window in a meeting, I'm not ignoring you. I'm thinking, and I'm just reminding you of that. So, you know, and so there's just no throwaway comments. The other thing as a leader, and I've seen this in different places is a leader can walk in and say, Hey, what about this idea? You know, I was thinking about this. Some people come out of that and get that experience think, Oh, you know, Mark said this idea, we got to go do it. And so I'll tell people in advance, this is just an idea. This is just to thought provoke. It doesn't mean it's even a good idea, but let's have that conversation. And it's okay to disagree. Disagreement leads to better decision-making. So what I've really learned through the years is what you say, how you say it really matters because otherwise it can be that distraction that I referenced on the upfront. And so that's something I've, I've really learned. The other is um, I've, I've learned patience and I'm not, a, my kids, <laughs> my kids would laugh if they heard this because I'm not patient. You know, like when I travel, like how fast you can get through security is like sport for me, right? Like, and so um, they call it travel mark and travel marks on, like he's all about, you know, no, no lack of patience and, and speed, but I've learned patience in leadership. Uh, I had a board member come to me when I stepped into this job, who was a former, you know, Fortune 500 CEO. And he said to me, you know, I like the changes. I like what you're doing, but think in years, not in months, think in years, not in months. And that sticks with you, but that's hard to do when you're driven by results. You know, and you're a CEO and you're a coach when you have only so many opportunities to perform, it's hard to be patient. Uh, but I, but I have learned that. And I think it's hopefully suited me well in terms of how I think about leadership. And the other to that point is I'm transparent. I'll tell you, if I, if I know something or I have a good idea, I'll share it, but I don't think it's written in stone per se. And the other is, and this has worked well in my relationship with now a board is that if I don't know something, I'm not going to fake it. I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't know this. Here's why, here's what we're looking to do to try to learn this. And that has resonated very well, not only with the board, but with the staff, because they recognize I'm not trying to be smarter than everybody in the room because I'm not. I like the thinking years, not months, because if you go back to that other board member that was saying, why don't you just market this to rich white kids? That would be thinking in months. Yeah, that could help us grow in the short term, but we're going to stagnate and we're not going to yeah. grow in the long run. I will say to that board member who challenged me, it, it was he was not recommending that, to be clear. He was being very clear as, as don't think in months, don't think in that short term. Because if you did, that's, this is what you'll do. And that is not good for us. He was, he was purposefully challenging me in front of everybody. Yeah, well, you need to have those to talk, do. you need to have those talking points because there's an argument to be made to, Hey, this is our niche. We're a niche sport. Let's just make sure our, our niche sport survives. Right. And, and that, that, Hey, like that might be an argument that could be logical, but that would be thinking in months instead of years. And so yeah. I think it's, it's cool. Speaking of like yeah. years and thinking in years, 
I think about a lot of what you've talked about, that competitiveness, it keeps coming out, that competitive advantage. Like how can I create a competitive advantage? And I think about someone like Paul Rabel and how he leveraged marketing and the way in which he's gone about building a brand for himself at first and now for a league. And it's interesting. Like I just watched this long feature he did with ESPN and um, it's, he's very thoughtful and it's interesting when I had him on the podcast, it was in person and he was like, can you give me like 15 minutes? This was years ago, 15 minutes. I got a call I got to make. And he was in my office and my office had very thin walls. And so he was working on creating the pro lacrosse league in my office. And I was like, listen, I'm like, we're not going to talk about this on the podcast, but it sounds like you got some interesting things going on. And so the guy is a bulldog. He's also very sharp, very bright, um, very competitive. You see it in that documentary, like his competitive spirit, sometimes leading to blind spots for him as a player in the locker room. I think they did a good job of showing all of that in the, in the documentary, which I highly recommend people check out as I look at formula one and what formula one's done with media and the explosion that we've had, we mentioned soccer earlier. I think the other part of soccer that is leading to more eyeballs in the U S is actually the access to the English premier league. And I know so many young people that are watching English premier league soccer on Saturdays, Sundays on the weekends. And so media has become so integral in growth for a sport. I'm curious for you, how do you think about marketing? And you've got a sales background. I think you even studied marketing in, in college. How do you think about marketing when it comes to uh, lacrosse in our country and, and how you can get it into more people's phones? Uh, and then maybe that phone leads to them grabbing a lacrosse stick. How do you think about that relationship? Um, well, that's you brought up a couple of points there that are important to touch upon. One being, you know, Paul Rabel, uh, the premier lacrosse league, uh, fate of a sport, which is a documentary reference, which I also watched, which I highly agree. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a great watch. Um, I'll go in, in, in a bit of reverse in terms of that question you just asked, and that is thinking about marketing and you reference storytelling. People remember stories more than they remember numbers and stats and, and, I'd said on the upfront, and this is something I said to the board during my interview process we, in lacrosse. We, as I said, we do a great job talking to ourselves. We got to talk to new audiences and the way to talk to new audiences is storytelling. There's a reason stories have been told down in cultures through, through years and years. Um, and there's a reason that, you know, great communicators do so via stories more than stats and numbers. And it's interesting because lacrosse has been so, they always, put out these stats and these numbers about how they're growing. And, and like, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk or somebody who was like, yeah, I've heard about lacrosse growing for the last 30 years. Like they're always growing. It's like, to your point, Jim Brown, I went to Syracuse. It's like, that's a story of him playing lacrosse and football and being one of the best lacrosse players. Ever. Like that's a fascinating story. The story of the history of the game and the origins and the native Americans. That's a fascinating story. I'm curious about the growth beyond our borders. Like how, what are the stories about it being played in Israel or being played in other countries? Like that to me is really, really more interesting than growing by 10% or whatever it's, it's happening and kids now in Denver playing in California, like, okay, that's interesting. But what's like the story behind it that I think it's, it's so spot on and lacrosse has a lot of that it just it, it how do you how do you create it how do you leverage it now you got me excited with the story I, I, I can tell you just you're getting pumped up about it but the point is 
is you're right. And this is one of the things that we have a tremendous opportunity to do. And th that's what I've also learned in, in lacrosse as well as a lot of other sports, like there's fragmentation. Well, that to me, fragmentation really needs opportunity. The more people I talk to is they do want the common denominator of more people enjoying experiencing the game. But the way to do that that is common is the storytelling. So I do look at our role is not just about growing more players. It's about growing your addressable audience, is creating more fans. So I have widened the lens of what we look at and say, yes, we do have a goal of participation, but ultimately people that invest in the PLL, or when I say people like investment vehicles, people that invest investment vehicles in the manufacturers, the media companies, the only way to grow that enterprise value is to grow your addressable audience. And so we look at ways of how do we grow our addressable audience? How do we make lacrosse quote unquote cool? What's gonna inspire a boy or girl or even a parent to want to pick up a stick or ask their kid to pick up a stick? And to your point, it is about storytelling. It is about cultural and social relevance. And so we're going through a deep research process right now to develop more accurate customer personas, who our players are and who they are not. And what are they watching and what appeals to them and why do they pick up a stick and why do they stay versus why do they leave and, and using research and data and insights to better tailor our positioning of the game to be more relevant, to be more fun, quite frankly, and to be more valuable to that type of potential player. And we need to tell stories and we need to tell stories often and we need to tell diverse stories. We need to tell compelling stories, funny stories. Um, so we're looking at how as an organization, we can continue to um, create more, particularly from a video perspective, where are the right platforms to be on and what is the right tone that matches with our brand, but also is relevant and interesting to potential players and fans. Um, and it's not about stats you know, completely. It's just not, it doesn't change the outcomes. You know, effort is appreciated, outcomes are rewarded. So what are our outcomes in terms of the type of story? So we do look at KPIs around engagement and around growth and around you know, communicating directly through technology and platforms with fans in an effort to tell more stories. So it, it is the obvious. Now, with that said, you need time and money to do those things. And you've got to have an infrastructure and you got to have a proper business because you got to fund that. And so that's the things that I'm looking at in terms of how we approach the game, not as just, um, you know, get more members and, 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 you know, put a stick in a kid's hands, which matters, but doing so in a way that's going to grow it because people want to watch it. They want to be part of it. They want to watch the PLL or Athletes Unlimited, which is a women's pro league. So um, storytelling is the way I believe strongly in it. And I've complimented both Paul Rabel and Mike Rabel on what they've done in storytelling. Those, those are important. And, and, and keep going down the line and the answer to that question is the intensity. And you mentioned it with Paul and the blind spots. For all of us, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And it is recognizing when that weakness presents itself in a manner that creates a blind spot. Uh, and that's not easy to do sometimes. And I, and I, I think highly of what Paul and Mike have done in terms of building that. And I also think of Athletes Unlimited, which is the Women's Pro League, equally as challenging, a different model, but they've done a great job in building a pro league for women's sport and lacrosse is part of that. Um, and I, I 
value their innovation. I value the fact that they're looking at things. Why are we doing it this way? Let's do it a different way that might be better and more appealing. And I think we all benefit from that. You worked at the NFL. Val Ackerman worked at the NBA. Uh, you know, the NFL is king or queen or whatever you want to call it. The NBA is behind, but also a massive entity. Val talked a lot about going to the WNBA and, and basically working as a startup and like having a small team and like getting her hands dirty for you. I would imagine, you know, spending time in the NFL for as long as you did and, and working in this behemoth, like working at USA lacrosse is more of like a startup approach or startup way of operating and just different. Can you talk about what it's like to work for, something like the jets and then the differences between that experience and, and working for something like USA lacrosse. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting at the league level versus team level, there are some differences say at the, at the, at the league um, in the NFL, the NFL from a league perspective was always about the collective enterprise value. They were market makers you know, when you look at historically through Motorola and DirecTV and certainly now with Amazon, like they're building markets um, by doing a deal, so to speak. At the team level, it was a little bit different in that we were, say, at a team in New York Jets, you're a big brand, but you're still relatively a small business. And you needed to be, at least the way we ran it, disciplined with P&Ls um, and disciplined with inputs and outputs. And your risk tolerance was then contingent upon your owner. Some ownership groups, and you know, you could probably go down the line and name them. They're a little more risk averse. Some owners are a little more risk tolerant. Say Jerry Jones, a little more risk tolerant. Woody was probably somewhere in between, uh, and even maybe more towards the risk tolerant. Uh, and so what that allowed for is for us to try new and different things while at the Jets, um, but we didn't have a long leash. If you failed, you needed to be fail quick and fail as cheap as you possibly could. And those are some of the learnings that I took away. But what also happens though, when you're in an organization like that, your ability to take real risk and real innovate is hampered a little bit by the environment you're in because you have the mothership of the NFL and that you have compliance and you can't stray too far because of intellectual property reasons or legal reasons or you know ownership concern when you get to where i am today the risk tolerance wasn't as great but now it's much greater and so we're having conversations about how we can innovate and do things with much more risk to uh, tolerance and and that is good so it allows us to innovate but the same principles remain. You got to have a disciplined PL, particularly as a 501c3, which is in essence a public company. And so you've got to have that discipline of you can't get too far out over your skis. You're not taking big bets. Um, we can take multiple small bets to see what works and test before we go. Um, and I learned that in working a bit in venture capital world and working as an advisor in that space is that um, you've got to really focus on your opportunity and your revenue because once you spend something, you can't get it back. So really focus on how am I gonna make money? What is really gonna work in the marketplace uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, at the Jets, you know, you, you, you could, 
He used to say this, you know, no matter what you do, they're going to kick the ball up at one o'clock. Do you so, miss not, it, do you miss not working for a team like being in the foxhole and, you know, even though you're on the business side, you know, Sundays come and yeah, they kick it off and then four o'clock hits and you win or you lose and you probably feel a certain way about it. And you know, it affects your ability to do your job as well, depending on how, how they do. Do you miss being in the foxhole, so to speak? Not as much as I, you, you think you might, or I thought I would. When I, when I left the Jets in, it was 19, or excuse me, 2013, I did miss it. That first year I missed it a great deal uh, because it was part of my life for the last 17 years. Prior to that, I was you know working in the college space and then an athlete, student athlete. Uh, and if you'd asked me 10 years ago where I was going to be, I would have thought I'd be with another team. But where I sit today, and I was saying, telling a friend of mine, I had dinner with who used to work at the Jets as well. And he works for, for another team out of the West coast. We were talking the other day and I said, I don't miss it. I actually literally said that I don't miss that roller coaster ride of intensity that sometimes is irrational intensity. That is rational is one thing, but what happens in those environments when you're in them a long time, the intensity and the stress becomes irrational. It's not as important as you think it is. And and that is not the wins and losses, but other factors that happen around the wins and losses. And that is what beats you down. It is an incredibly stressful environment. And sometimes it's not healthy and it's not fun. I'm having fun. And what happened in those environments is sometimes the fun goes away because the intensity is so great and it becomes far too challenging uh, to just enjoy yourself day in and day out. And so that I don't miss it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was just uh, watching an interview with Michael Jordan and he was talking about why he loves to play golf. And he said, you know, that's where I can get my competitive juices flowing. And I found since playing basketball, that's the only thing that can really get my competitive juices flowing. And he's like, and then I need to go fishing and, and relax a little bit and, and not let them come. And so, you know, it's interesting because I love competitiveness. I think I'm competitive. Um, but it can be a slippery slope where if you're attaching your identity or your self-worth to wins or losses, like it can be really unhealthy. And I think in a lot of ways, sports has that addiction because the winning makes you feel important, special, validated, whatever the word is. And when you're in an ecosystem with other people, it feels like you have a sense of belonging. And so that is all, there's great stuff in there and there's also dangerous stuff in there. So I, I'm thinking a lot about that, uh, for my own being and, and for the clients that I serve as well. Um, there's one last thing that I have to get your opinion on, your help on, your coaching on. And so when I went on your LinkedIn profile, there was something that said hashtag intellectual property. And you mentioned intellectual property a minute ago. And I am someone, even though my dad was a lawyer by trade and my wife, her whole family are, are lawyers, um, I don't really get into intellectual property for my work. And I've got this workbook that's like 250 pages, probably going to boil it down to 150 pages and it's exercises and activities. It's stuff that I use every day with my clients. And I'm like, I think I'm just going to give this away. And it's interesting because my mentor, when he used to talk to me, he recently passed away. He used to say, the one regret I have is that I didn't use my intellectual property, that I didn't actually protect my intellectual property. Can you coach me on this for, for like a couple minutes? I'm, I'm going to use your legal mind and like, tell me why I'm wrong on like 
maybe I do need, let's just use the workbook. Like, why should I protect that? I'm thinking I'm just going to give it away. Like, you know, put your email in here and here you go. Here's 150 exercises for you to develop yourself as a leader, your mind, uh, perform culture, all those, you know, key elements that I play in. Tell me why I'm, why I'm missing the boat here. So the first thing I'm going to say is, is the legal disclaimer that this is not legal advice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they taught you well at St. John's. He still has it. So, you know, I spent some time before I took this job working with an organization called Claris Law and Claris IP, small shop. And it was part law firm. You had like you know, eight or nine lawyers and they continued to grow and they had like eight or nine consultants. And part of their value proposition was certainly we can give you legal counsel around, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, legal contracts, media contracts, um, trademark, etc. But they had a group of people that were consultants. And what they would do is they'd go into an organization and help them understand what IP they had and how they could use that for business outcomes um, and or just manage it. And so what I really learned in that process, a couple of things. One is that almost every entity and every individual has IP that's sitting on a shelf that they don't use. Doesn't mean you got to monetize it. It's just not even being used. And so it sits in a in a file server somewhere in the cloud or, a, you know, a, a detachable hard drive under someone's desk in a drawer. And, and that is not being used. So my, the first thing is people don't really know what they have. And so to your point, you know, at least you've got a book of ideas, but it's the, it, an idea in and of itself is not trademarkable per se, but the, the implementation, the execution, the idea of those ideas coming together and executing that has value. And so what you need to do is define, you know, where and what do you want that value to provide for you? And I'll, and I'll use some, some real life examples. So there's a lot of content that is produced and just goes away. That content can be repurposed as a tool that can be licensed content, of course, but can be used as a marketing tool. And I use different approaches to this, giving it away versus, um, um, you know, kind of trademarking it slash protecting it. The first thing is you really do want to protect it because you can still give it away royalty free, but you then protect it. Once you give it away and everybody's using it, you start to lose ownership of it. And so it's just some examples of what the Grateful Dead did. So the Grateful Dead was, you know, yeah, it still is, but, you know, great band. They, they would allow people to take their concerts and that became this whole cultural uh, cottage industry of trading, you know, their, their live performances. They didn't protect it per se but it became a great marketing tool and vehicle for them to speak to new audiences and, you know, appeal to the core audience. Whereas in other music artists, obviously they, they've got copyrights. There's multiple copyrights on that stuff and they'll use it to monetize it. And that's just some of the most obvious uses. So you can take what you've got, you protect it working with a lawyer, but you can choose to quote unquote, give it away royalty free as a bounce back and as a mechanism to drive people to your website, you know, and, and these are just simple executions. Here are the first five exercises to get the next five, come back to my website. Then it's data capture. You still could give it away for free, but you're using it to drive a business outcome. And there's, you know, a lot more you know, intelligent people than me can give you a greater uses of, of that, but don't give it away, protect it. And then how you use it is, you know, your choice, but at least you're protecting its interest. And so um, that is a common theme is that most people have a lot of value sitting on a shelf that they don't use 
and it doesn't need to be, like I said, for monetary, it could be for other strategic business outcomes. Yeah. So if I summarize, it's like, Hey, there's nothing wrong with protecting it. It's, there's no downside in that. Um, and if yeah. you choose to still give it away, you give it away, but at least you have that protection. If you choose to go in a different direction, then you've, you've got that. So it's, it's more precautionary than anything and opens up more possibilities on, on what you can do with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And widening the definition of success for that, in, that idea or that intellectual property. Um, people think that, you know, it's just about money. It's not, you know, we, we have a lot of content that we want to share with people. And yes, do we want to quote unquote monetize it? Sure. But we also want to use it to tell stories and to bring people in, um, but not charge for it because that's your that creating a barrier to entrance. Well, and they could change it. So someone could take your content, change a couple words, and then make it their, make mm -hmm. it their own. And then forget even them using it to make it their own, but they could be misinterpreting what you what you had actually designed it for and what it was supposed to be for. And now they're using it in a in a malicious way. All right. I'm sold. That was helpful. Thank you. Uh you're off the clock. Hopefully that didn't cost me too much money. All right. Uh, to close, uh, I'd love for people to know where they can find you. I know you're on LinkedIn uh, and then USA, USA Lacrosse in general. Where are the best places to guide people if they want to get involved in lacrosse, find out more about what you all are doing? Uh, where can they do that? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. USALacrosse.com. Um, that is the best way to find us. There's a whole uh, assortment of information on there. And, you know, we look at content to educate, inform, and entertain. And usalacrosse.com will provide that opportunity for you to, to take you down whatever path you want in those areas. Uh, we certainly have many social handles, Instagram uh, for usalacrosse.com. We have a media property called USA Lacrosse Magazine, which is a digital property and, and actually still a magazine property that does go to members. Um, it is great information, great entertainment, great stories that, um, you know, we'll, we'll look to bring to more people. So usalacrosse.com. And certainly you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, it's Mark Riccio, M-A-R-C-R-I-C-C-I-O. Um, you'll see me there and happy to engage and uh, appreciate anybody who wants to support the game and the growth of the game and providing opportunity for folks to pick up and play and enjoy and experience lacrosse. Perfect. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. And I play on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson and Twitter at Brian Levinson as well. Mark, great to connect with you. Hopefully we can meet up in person sometime in Maryland. Uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. This, this has been great. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And so I did that with the expectation. I'm using this law degree to supplement my business career, not to go practice, not to be an agent. I did not want to do that. It was about how do I put myself in a position to be competitively different than everybody else. And that's the, one of the other great things I've learned through the years is there's so many people that are bigger, faster, stronger on the field that are bigger, faster, stronger, smarter off the field. And you got to continually look around corners. You got to continually differentiate your skill set and, and what you bring to the table.